Psalm 63, we'll read the entire psalm. Um, yes, we are jumping from Psalm 3 to Psalm 63. Uh, but I thought it, uh, well, basically as we'll see, the backdrop of this psalm, I believe, is David running from Absalom. And uh, Keith did all the context last week, so I thought while that's fresh in your mind, it might be helpful to look at Psalm 63. Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1, which as uh, Keith mentioned last week, verse 1 in the Hebrew, I guess is what we'll start with. Uh, The sub or uh, superscript there, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen You in the sanctuary to see Your power and Your glory. Because Your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in Your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, enlighten our eyes that we might see glorious things from your law. That we might see you more clearly. That you would stoke the fires of our love for you. That we might live more radically for the Lord Jesus. And I pray anybody in this room who has no love for Christ that you would quicken, awaken their hearts and draw them to Christ and grant them a faith that works through love. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus was asked by the religious leaders of his day, what is the greatest commandment? You might remember his response to that. He said, the foremost Commandment of all, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. God's chief and primary command is for us to love Him with all of our being and all that we are. But the reality is is that we often don't love Him as we ought to. We love a lot of things in life. We love pizza and wings and video games and entertainment and all kinds of stuff. And those things aren't necessarily evil. 
But Jesus says that the chief love of our heart ought to be God, the living God. And the reality is, as I mentioned, is that there is that which ought to be and there's that which is in the Christian life. And often one of the frustrations of that which ought to be and the reality of that which is is that we don't live as we ought to. In fact, it was the late David Powson who said, the Christian life is much like a man walking up a stair of steps with a yo-yo. The Christian life is the ball on the yo-yo. Okay? That there is some measure of progress upward because the man is climbing the stairs, but nonetheless there's those dips of going down and sometimes the going down is uh, lower than where you were even before. It's the experience of the Christian life. It's the reality of living in a fallen world in a non-glorified state as believers. In other words, Christians have not reached the state of glorification where we are without sin. We await that day. And one of the beautiful things about the Psalms, as Pastor Keith mentioned last week, is that uh, these songs, there's a song for every experience of walking with God. And this is a psalm that David is in the midst of an experience of the heavy chastening hand of God. And so, the aim this morning is that we would bolster our love and passion for the Lord. It was the, uh, I don't think they're a Christian group, but they go by the name of the Righteous Brothers, uh, who had a song called, You've lost that loving feeling. So we want to, as one of the lines in that, we want to bring back that loving feeling. And, and I know some of you may, you know, go into convulsions when you hear the word feeling. But, but, but certainly one angle, one component of love is an emotive aspect of love. It's not mere raw duty. I mean, if you, you know, get flowers for your spouse... You know, you don't say, well, I was supposed to. It's our anniversary. Well, hopefully there's some joy and delight as you give gifts to those you love. And there should be some emotive aspect to our love. So we're going to bring back that love. And so we're going to look at three principles to bring back that love. And the first of these is, is really basic, is, is that you understand that you sense there are desert seasons with God. That's the reality. It's a given that there are desert seasons with God. Let's look at the psalm. Notice Psalm 63. As was mentioned last week, the first verse in Hebrew is the superscript, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, if you follow the life of David reading through First and Second Samuel, you'll realize that there are two occasions in which he was uh, in exile in the wilderness in the desert of Judah. And uh, it's a very dry, barren, and even mountainous area. And one of these occasions is when he's running for some ten years of his life before he even became king from the prior king, namely King Saul. The other occasion, as uh, Pastor Keith mentioned last week, was when he was running from Absalom, when there was a coup, there was a takeover of the... uh, Uh, of the the kingship in Israel and he was driven out of town. Now, 
I think looking at Psalm 63 and some of the language when David speaks of some experience of seeing God in the sanctuary, and also uh, I think it's in verse 11 the way the psalm closes, but the king, speaking of himself in the third person, but the king will rejoice in God, referring to himself as a king, that this is an experience of David not before he was king, but after he was king. And so I opt for the latter, that this, this psalm was birthed in the context of David running from his son Absalom. And again, it's important for us to, to understand that backdrop. I'm not going to review all of it, but, but remember what we learned last week, that David had sinned grievously against the Lord. He had committed adultery and tried to cover up that adultery. And it, and it took God <coughs> in His kindness sending Nathan the prophet to confront David in that sin and to call him to repentance. But, but even though David was forgiven as David repented in an amazing way, and we read the aftermath of that in Psalm 51, that, uh, that there were still consequences to David's sin. And Nathan said, the sword will not depart from your house. And in a sense, in a kind of strange poetic justice, as David took the life of Uriah the Hittite, God took the life of four of David's sons prematurely. Because remember David's testimony when he heard the parable that Nathan told him was that man shouldn't pay back fourfold what he had done. And so there's fourfold judgment upon David's house. And, and one of them is the premature death of his son Absalom. And so David is in the midst of a context in which he is experiencing the consequences of his own sin. And, and you know, I think this is important because sometimes, you know, we, we go through different trials in life. And some of these trials we're innocent victims in these trials. It's, we're, we're the recipients of injustices. But in some of the trials, we're reaping what we've sown. And sometimes we put those category, that category of trials where we're reaping what we've sown and we think, well, I guess let me just turn away from the Lord a little bit more. Let me just go back to that sin or, or go back in the wrong direction. And, and I think Psalm 63 is a wonderful passage to say, even if, if you are experiencing the, the disciplinary hand of God as a consequence of your own sin, that God wants you to turn back to Him. David becomes a marvelous illustration of how we can stoke the flames of that love, even though we know that we have grievously sinned against God and we are receiving the consequences of our own sin. And this is what we see at the beginning of this psalm. Notice in verse 1, he says, O God, You are my God. I shall, earnestly, I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David says, I shall seek You earnestly. David is on the lookout for God. He earnestly longs to be back into fellowship and communion with God. He's seeking after God in the midst of his circumstances. He's not turning away from God. He's turning to God even 
Though the reality is he's experiencing consequences of his grievous sin against God. In fact, Psalm 3 from last week, in verses 1 and 2, it says, David also cries out, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. So this is, this is David's experiencing and, and, and the adversaries are saying he, he's cut off from his relationship with God. God's not going to rescue him. God's through with him. And it's in the midst of that David doesn't listen to the lies. He says, no, I'm going to seek after God. Have you ever had a conflict with somebody and you realize that you have sinned against that person grievously? Maybe a friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a child. And, and you realize that you are not in their good graces at this moment. The relationship is sour. But yet you long for peace and reconciliation. You long for the sweetness of the fellowship, the sweetness of the relationship. You long for it to be back the way it was before. Well, this is something of David's experience. He's earnestly seeking after God. And and, and notice the language here. He is literally in a desert in the wilderness of Judah. It's not, you know, uh, Narnia. It's not some fictitious land. It's a a real desert. But that then becomes an illustration of him in the midst of the desert seeking after God, realizing he desperately needs God in the same way in the desert that you desperately need water. And so this is the language here. He says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David realizes he needs to be back in that loving relationship with God just as much as he needs water. Now, it's hard for us to even appreciate that, right? You know, we get thirsty, we go to the tap and turn on the tap, or we have water filters, or we have bottled water. We, we, you know, we, we have an abundance of water. But being on the run, David running for his own life, in the midst of a rebellion, a coup, there would have been very limited supplies of water. (laughs) The canteens were running low. Okay? It wasn't like they could just, you know, open up somebody's faucet on their hose or something next door. They're in the midst of dire situation, lacking the necessity of water. And, and again, David is equating this. He's likening this. He's using this desperate need for water to highlight his desperate need for God and his relationship with God. Notice even again the, the way in which David speaks of God. David is intensely concerned about his relationship with God. In fact, 37 times throughout this small psalm, it's only 11 verses in English, 12 in Hebrew, 
37 times he uses the word I or my or the second person pronoun you or your 37 times in this small little psalm. So, and, and this is encapsulated even in the first, first line of the psalm. Oh God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. David was in a very real personal relationship with God. This point in parenting one of our children... She has learned the word mine. (laughs) My. Mine. And uh, she's willing to let you know. Well, David speaks of this personal relationship with God. This is my God. And it's not to the exclusion that he's not anybody else's God. But David, David knew his God, even though he had sinned grievously against him. Even though he had no doubt disappointed him tremendously. He was still in a covenant relationship with his God. David then, in in verse 1 here, he uses a kind of synonymous parallelism where he says, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. So he's my soul, my flesh, thirsting, yearning. It's the idea of David is longing after God and the, the sweetness of that relationship with all of his being. All of his being. And this is noteworthy. Thomas Brooks, the uh, English Puritan, he said this He does not say, My soul thirsts for water, but my soul thirsts for thee. He doth not say, My soul thirsts for the blood of my enemies. But my soul thirsts for thee. Nor doth he say, My soul thirsts for deliverance out of this dry and barren wilderness. But my soul thirsts for thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Nor doth he say, My soul thirsts for a crown, a kingdom. But my soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee. So, friend, where are you at? If you were to take your spiritual temperature of your the warmth of your love for God these days, where would it be? Has your heart grown cold and indifferent? Maybe it's it's been a gradual process of neglecting uh, regular reading of Scripture, regular prayer. Or maybe maybe it's been neglecting of the fellowship, but your heart has grown cold and distant from God, now's the time to go back to Him. Or maybe maybe you've committed some grievous sin and you realize it's just kind of hanging before you and, and there's distance in your relationship with God. The psalm is for you. Or maybe there's a low-grade warmth of affection for the Lord, but you know... It's not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This psalm is for you. And also, you need to understand, you can't get the the wind knocked out of you by the reality that you are experiencing a, 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 a valley in the Christian life. That's part of the Christian life. 
In heaven, we won't have to worry about seasons of spiritual declension or, or you know, sometimes called backsliding. But, but our, our love for Christ will be white hot all the time. But friend, we, we're, we're in the wilderness. And sometimes, oftentimes, all the time, our love is not what it ought to be, but sometimes it's not even what it used to be. So not only must you sense that there are deserts in our relationship with God, but secondly, you must seek to delight in God. Seek to delight in God. And notice how David goes about this in verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Notice the thus points backwards. It points backwards to some experience that David had in the past. And, and this is one of those situations in Scripture where you, you, you want to say, David, please tell us more. But he doesn't. And, and you know, and the reality is sometimes that's how it is in the Christian life, you know? That were we to share those personal experiences with the Lord, it would just ruin it. You know, you don't need to know about all my personal loving experiences with my wife. It would ruin it. I'm not going to tell you. And similarly, our, our experiences with the Lord, we don't need to share it. It would, just, it would just ruin it. It would be flaunting it. And so David just alludes to this experience he had, notice, in the sanctuary, beholding God's power and His glory. Now, I'm convinced that David is talking about some experience he had before the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of Yahweh. And one of the reasons for that is because this language of power and glory is often associated with the Ark of God. Now, when I say the Ark of God, I'm not talking about that Ark in northern Kentucky, um, that kind of Ark, that Noah's Ark. No, I'm talking about the, the little Ark that was like three feet by eight feet and it's you know has a mercy seat on top of it and there's cherubim, these cherubim, these angelic-like figures facing one another and it was that place, that holy, special place that only the high priest could enter into once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was the place where Israel met with their God. And it's also that ark is that which was so important for David when he wanted to uh, transition the capital city to be in Jerusalem and to make preparations for the building of the temple around that ark. You remember it was in 2 Samuel chapter 6 with the moving of the ark when those two doofuses... Ahiah and Uzzah are moving the ark and, you know, rather than transporting it in the proper way, they didn't and the ark begins to tip over and the one dude reaches out to grab it and God says, no, you don't touch the ark and He strikes him dead. That's the, the ark that I think is being referred... And, and again, I, I asserted that, but let me just try to prove that for a second. Remember... In the days of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. And do you remember when they were using the ark like a rabbit's foot? And they were taking it into war with them. saying It was like a lucky charm. Here, we'll, we'll take the ark of Yahweh into war. And we're going to win this war. And, and the ark actually gets captured by the Philistines. 
Okay, I'm not going to go into all the details of that story, but I think it's in 1 Samuel chapter 5, 4 or 5-ish. But you remember what happened in the aftermath of that as Eli died, and remember one of his, uh, uh, um, one of his daughter-in-laws dies, and as she's giving birth, she names the child Echavod, Echabod, saying that the glory of God has departed from Israel. She names this child after the, this great event that happened, namely the glory of God had departed. What was the reference to? The ark getting stolen by the Philistines. So the ark is, 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 is often, uh, the language of it uh, is spoken as the place of God's glory. It's also the place we see um, in Leviticus chapter at the end of it where God consumes the first sacrifice that's officiated at the altar it says the glory of, of the Lord appeared and he brings fire down from heaven so, so the ark is commonly associated with glory the glory of God God's manifest presence among his people but also secondly it's associated with strength listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 41 uh, Solomon speaks of the ark of your strength. It's the same word translated here in, in uh, Psalm 63 as power. So when David is saying, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your glory and your power, he's talking about some experience of meeting the manifest presence of God before the ark of Yahweh God of Israel. He's recalling a special time with the Lord. Then he says in verse 3, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is an amazing statement. This word translated loving kindness, it's, it's one of my favorite words in all the Bible. You know, you no doubt have heard many a sermon on the New Testament word for love, agape, and you know, preachers like to wax eloquent and, and sometimes... Um, not so truthful about that word, but the, you have the New Testament word agape, but the Old Testament word, often translated loving kindness, it's the Hebrew word chesed. Did you ever hear of chesedic Jews? Those are the, the faithful Jews they declare themselves. The chesed of Yahweh is God's love, but it's His loyal love. It's His faithful love. Some translations say His steadfast love. It's love with rebar in it. It's love with backbone and commitment and fidelity to it. It's love that's rooted in promise that says, I do till death do we part. And so this is, this is the love that David is talking about. He says, your loving kindness, your chesed, is better than life. Because it's better than life, my lips will praise you. So David, in the midst of this barrenness, he recalls this experience before the ark, but then he also recalls one of the grandest attributes of Almighty God, namely, His loyal love. And he says, because your loyal love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is amazing. David is testifying that God's faithful love is better than life. Think of the life that David had. David was a king. David could eat 
whatever he wanted. He would just have his servants, hey, go make me this. He could do whatever he wanted. He was the king. I mean, of course, he was subject to the law of God, but he, he was king. He was a monarch. He no doubt lived as good as a, an Israelite in that day could have lived. He had a multiplicity of wives. And yet, he looks at all of his possessions, all of his accomplishments, which, by the way, again, his accomplishments were tremendous. He united the king of, of the kingdom of Israel. He began to establish Jerusalem as a capital and as a central worship center. He had tremendous political accomplishments and he came from being just a little shepherd boy. And yet all of his accomplishments, all of his success, all of his wealth, all of his women, he looked at and said, your loving kindness is better than all of it. It's better than all that this life has to offer. And notice that word at the very beginning of the verse, because of this, my lips will praise you. Because he was so satisfied and delighting in God's loyal love above everything that this life has to offer, the overflow of it was praise to God. That was the engine that drove his praise. And this is the, the Old Testament equivalent of Philippians 1.21. Philippians 1.21 Apostle Paul says he was confident that Christ would be magnified whether in his life or in his death because to live would be Christ and to die would be gain. Paul was confident that Christ would be magnified because he was so delighting in Christ that whether he died or whether he lived, he knew that more of Christ would be gained for him. If you're familiar with the term coined, I think, by John Piper of Christian hedonism. If you're not familiar with that term, you need to get familiar with it. You need to find out more about it because it's summarized in the statement that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That God is not against your joy and happiness. He's for it. But He wants your joy and your happiness and your delight to be rooted and anchored in a relationship with the true and living God, marinating your life upon the loyal love of God. And the overflow of that will be living radically to glorify Him. Amen. And friend, this is, this is huge. This is again, this is David stoking the flames of his love for the Lord with God's Loyal love. This is this love we see demonstrated in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. When God speaks of him and his relationship with Israel, he says, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than all the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. And then he goes on in that, that verse to say that God, God chose to love you because He loved you. <laughs> in other words, it doesn't give an answer. It says He just wanted to love you. Because God's love is not based upon anything in us, but it's based in the character of Almighty God. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. 
This is very important because the love of men is mutable, changeable. It's temporary. But God's love is unchanging. God's love is faithful. David could not rely upon the love of men. He could not rely upon the commitments of his political allies. In fact, not long prior to this experience of David in the desert, one of his closest friends, one of his closest advisors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, who becomes a kind of, uh, of type, a picture of Judas in the New Testament, betraying the anointed king of Israel. He betrays David. Close advisor, closest friend. He lifted up his heel against David. David's own son, Absalom, his own flesh and blood, during this very time is trying to take over the throne and has put a bounty on David's head. His own flesh and blood. His own child. Even Jonathan, the man whom he had such a close relationship that that the Scriptures say it was like their, their souls were knit together. At this point, Jonathan's dead. He's not around to back up his good friend David. And no doubt David as king would have constantly, he would constantly be the object of feigned love. I mean, this is, this is often the case of people in power or people who have lots of money or people who, even who are very attractive. You know, uh, you know, most of us who don't have power, don't have money, aren't very attractive. We want to be in the shoes of those who have those things. But one of the great challenges, I, I would think, I don't know this by experience, of those who have those things is the reality of, do you really care about me? Or do you just want my money? Do you really care about me or... You just want to tap into my power. That's the reality that David experienced. And so, every person who seemingly befriended him, could he really know that they loved and cared for him? But David says, because your loyal love is better than life. Your faithful, backbone, promised love towards me is better than life. My lips... They will praise you. Verse 4, So I will bless you as long as I live. To bless God means to speak well of Him. As long as you live, I will lift up my hands in your name. My my soul is satisfied, verse 5, as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful Lips. He says, My soul, my, my inner man is satisfied with God. And he likens it to what? Well, if you know, if if the quenching of thirst imagery you didn't like, how about some steak? Okay? Marrow and fatness. Okay, marrow, you know, the, the inner part of the bones. Uh, which doesn't sound very appealing, but I've eaten it in third world countries. It's not that bad. 
But fatness, fatness was reserved. That was normally reserved only for the Lord in sacrifice. But he's talking about you know eating a, a big, juicy, grilled steak and just that feeling of being satiated. Mm. You know, maybe even unbutton that top button. Let the belly hang out. Satisfied. He said, I'm, that's a, because I'm satisfied, he, he doesn't need anything else. He has God's love. He has His loyal love. He's delighting in the Lord. He knows that, that oh, even though his whole world is being upheaved, again, this man is camping out in the desert on the run with a bounty on his life. His whole family is in ruins. His whole political career is in ruins. Everything is going wrong. But in the midst of having everything taken away, there's one thing that couldn't be taken away, namely his relationship with the true and living God. David felt deeply for God. He was drinking deeply of the love of God in the midst of a very barren wilderness. And so let me, just based off of these couple verses, let me try to give you some real practical help because we, we hopefully you want to stoke the flames of your love for God. You want to delight in God. Notice from this passage, I think we can first go back to our first love. Notice how David recalls this experience of verse three or verse two. I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. He, he, and I know there's a danger in this because there, there, sometimes the way we interpret the past, it can go good or bad with us. You know, sometimes we interpret the past and 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 we just think, oh, it just wishes the way things were. You know. And that's not healthy. <laughs> but there is a way of looking back at the past as a marker, as a, as, a, as a flag that was planted, that that can be healthy. And I think that's obviously what David is doing here. He's remembering God and this experience he had with God and God's love for him. Even, you know, think back to when God first arrested your soul. Think back to the flames of your love for the Lord. Think back to think about the reality of where would you be right now if God had not intervened in your life? Where would Travis Alexander be? Where would Chuck Yordy be? Where would you be? Had we not heard their stories of what God did in intervening in their life? Sometimes you just have to ponder that. And sit back and wonder, oh God, thank you. Thank you for encountering me and turning my heart to you. Hallelujah. Revelation 2.5, Paul or uh, Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus whose love had grown cold. Remember what he says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember your first love. Go back to that. But secondly, remember your sanctuary. In, in, 
it's interesting here because David here is saying, I've seen you in the sanctuary, and I've, I've tried to argue that this was the Ark of the Covenant. This was where Israel met with their God. This was where God's people met with God. Okay, This was also the place of sacrifice. This was how people would be accepted by God through blood sacrifice. And when we ask the question, what is the sanctuary of God for the new covenant people of God? It's not a place. It's not a building. It's a person. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, he used the exact word, it's translated propitiation, at least in the New American Standard. That's also in the Old Testament translated the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is the place of meeting with God. And so, you need to go back to that meeting place with God. You need to go back to Christ. You need to go back to Him. And the only grounds for you to be accepted before a holy God is what Jesus did on the cross. And, and friend, when you open the hood of your heart and ask the question, what drives the Christian life? It's the sanctuary. It's the cross. It's what Jesus did. That's why in Titus it says, Paul writing to Titus, he says, the grace of God has appeared teaching us what? to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live righteously, soberly, and godly in this present age. What is it that drives the engine of saying no to sin and living a life that's godly and righteous and that honors Him? It's the grace of God. That's the engine that will drive you. And so, friend, and this, this is really our third, not only to go back to that first love, remember your sanctuary, thirdly, to meditate on the gospel. Notice what he does here in 63.6. He says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. I meditate on you in the night watch. Now, I love the, the word for meditate here. It's, it's an onomatopoeia. You know, that, that's those words that sound like the word, like swish or buzz. Well, the Hebrew word for meditate is haga. It's like, in fact, it comes up in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 with meditating upon the law of the Lord day and night. Psalm 2, it's the, the nations conspiring. They're conspiring. That's the word that's translated. It's the idea of, of meditating. Is you're, you're repeating it over and over. You're reciting it over and over. You're saying it over and over. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm repeating... I'm meditating, I'm cogitating upon who you are when I can't sleep at night. Friend, meditation. And sometimes in, the, in, in our world, we just need to unplug, right? You know, that, that, that little thing on your iPhone that says, do not disturb, hit that button. <laughs> uh, whatever it is on your Android, you, you need to... To just have some undistracted time of remembering who God is, remembering the gospel, marinating your mind upon this loyal love of God, sitting in wonder that, that this Jesus would die for me. 
He would lay down His life for me. He would intercept me as I was headed towards the trajectory of hell and put me on a path to follow Him. And then you seek to live your life for Him no matter what the circumstance. Well, we've seen that you must sense that there are deserts in the Christian life. Secondly, you must seek all, you must seek delight in God. And now thirdly, you must see the destiny of God's enemies. Notice how he ends this psalm. It seems quite inappropriate. <laughs> he says in verse 9, But those who seek my life to destroy it will go down to the depths of the earth. They're going to die. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. Kind of an irony there. Remember, the sword will not depart from your house, was said to David. They will be a prey for foxes. Kind of grotesque. They're not going to receive the proper burial, and so they're going to be fox and other animals' lunch and dinner and breakfast. But, verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouth of those who speak lies will be stopped. Again, this may seem odd to us. I mean, all of a sudden, David is delighting in God. You know, we just imagine him in his kind of quiet time with a smile on his face, meditating upon the the loyal love of God. And then he looks out, you know, he looks across the field and says, you're going to kill them. And, And it seems quite carnal and unsanctified. Until again, we remember the context. Absalom is an antichrist. He's against the Lord's anointed. He's an enemy of Almighty God. He's defying God's anointed one, His Christ, His Mashiach. And because of that, He's actually the one with a bounty on His head. He is an enemy. And and again, this this is important because while David is experiencing consequences of his own foolish decisions, there is the hope and the reality that that which opposes God will one day be eradicated and incarcerated in hell forever. This is good news. Now, you might ask the question, how did David know that? I mean, right? He knew it. How did he know that his enemies will fall? He knew it because of 2 Samuel chapter 7. God had promised an eternal kingdom. He knew that ultimately that kingdom was not promised to Absalom and his coup. And so he had confidence that God would be faithful to his promise. In the same way, new covenant believers have the promise, the similar kind of promise that we see In verse 11, everyone who swears by Him, who swears by the new covenant anointed one, the Christ, everyone who pledges allegiance to Jesus will glory and the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. 
We have the promise and hope as new covenant believers that Christ will reign forever. There will be no contenders for the throne. There will no be future any future coups and insurrections against Christ's eternal kingdom, but His kingdom will go on forever and ever, and it's banking upon the same promise that was given to David, namely, that God would give a forever king. Amen. And so, friend, I have to... Pause by asking and making sure if you are sitting in this room, you are reconciled to this new covenant King, Jesus. That you are not one of His adversaries. That you are not one who is standing on the opposite ball of Him. Because all adversaries will be judged and incarcerated and placed in hell forever. And if you're sitting here this morning and there's no affection and love for Christ and there's never been any affection and love for the Lord in your heart and life, friend, you're dead. You need to be born again. You need to come and be honest with God. Say, God, I don't have a love for You. I don't want to live for You. I'm not interested in You. And ask God to give you His Holy Spirit, to give you newness of life, and you lay hold of Christ and Him crucified as your only hope to stand before God. And then you will also need to know that Christian life will be one of peaks and valleys, and you'll need to come back to Psalm 63 regularly to stoke the flames of your love for God, but you will continue to follow Him. And when it's all said and done, the mouths of those who oppose King Jesus will be stopped. So it's better to stop your mouth now and get on His team before your mouth is stopped in the future. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for Psalm 63 and the beautiful, glorious reality that it is, the truth that it teaches us, the the God that we see here You, the true and living God, who is worthy of all of our love and affection. So Lord, we ask forgiveness for not loving You as we ought to, but also take us back to the sanctuary, the meeting place with You, the cross. And Lord, motivate us to live lives of loving, passionate, radical living for You. In Jesus' name, Amen.